Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who solves all of his problems with weird Prince and the Pauper scenarios. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and it's really fantastic to be a Midwestern white guy with brown hair and brown eyes because, like, I personally know at least 12 people I could pass for. Well, yeah. I mean, well, so you take the good with the bad, right? Because, yes, you could pass for a lot of people, but you also look like every single mugshot in the post office. That's fair. That's fair. But the good news is, as long as I memorize someone I look like's address, oh, right, right, anytime right. I encounter just... the police, I can say, oh, I don't have my ID on me, but I'm... Uh... <laughs> you can look me up here. Uh, and it all work out. Uh, we also have joining us this week, Adam Speakerman. Say hello, Adam. Hello, everybody. Glad to have you, Adam. Uh, we had wanted you for the last last time we talked about a Charlie Chaplin film with uh, uh, Modern Times, but uh, it did not work out. I think we had a pretty good conversation about Modern Times without yeah, you, it's, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, but it's always episode. a treat to have I you on. Enjoyed it. Yeah, so, oh, thank so. you. Sad to miss that one, but it's very busy with work at that time. So. <laughs> yes, things. Life is busy, and it's very hard to schedule. Uh, fortunately, we are we have a little advantage this time in that Pat is in the U.S. Uh, so. Yes, we we are going to call that an advantage. I'm doing air quotes. You guys can't <laughs> well, see because I had to turn off my camera, but it is an advantage for time. I do not have to do nearly as much math to do the scheduling. This is true. This when is true. Pat and I are in the same time zone for once, so uh, it worked out. Well, before we get started this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon for a second. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-criterion film over there. Our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch, working usually from a list that I put together, but sometimes from lists that our supporters suggest as well. Sometimes the result of a fever dream. <laughs> Pretty often a result of a fever dream. Um... The, pro- the problem is that whenever I pre-plan an idea, uh, like this month, for instance, I've, I've been sitting on what I was going to do for this month for at least four weeks. And then in the last two weeks, uh, both Pee Wee Herman and William Friedkin have died. And <laughs> memorial lists for either of them would be great lists. But yeah. I, can't, I can't do multiple lists, so... We'll just fall back on my last idea because I, I still mean, want to do I mean, you could it. do like some sort of confusing scenario where you do like one from each list. Do an immemorial like, for everyone. That? Yeah. What's, what's the connection here? It's like, well, I picked one movie from everybody that I care about. I, uh, I feel like uh, Pee Wee Herman and William Friedkin would make like Ernest the Texas Chainsaw Massacre like <laughs> movie. <laughs> I think they should work, should have worked together. I'm sorry. Oh. They're making movies in heaven now. Uh, or something. Um, anyway. <laughs> That's the way that works, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of fun over there. Uh, we watch a pretty wide variety of movies. Like I said, that's all for $1 a month. You get access to that bonus episode of the entire back catalog. There's 70 over there now. And uh, yeah, a little above that at uh, $5, 
we like to thank those folks on air, those people who can help keep us going a little bit more, get those, get those server bills paid, and we're very grateful for them. Thank you to our $5 supporters, Stephen Goldmeyer, Eric Coronado, Chris Otto, and Andrew Jarrett. Yes, thank you. Above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard once a month, write a little personalized note, and mail that off to our $10 and above supporters. Also, like to thank them on air and thank you so much to Tracy McGrath, Patrick Yako, Nina Bajnak, Jason Westaver, and hey, Adam Speakerman. You're a $10 hey, supporter. Hey, Thanks. Thank you. You're welcome. Please enjoy this month whatever I can make at my parents' house. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you want to see those postcards without committing that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there, and the postcards will come up. Most of the past ones, I put them up in a little bit of delay so our supporters get them first, and also a few have been challenged, and Redbubble refuses to go to well, bat this course. month, I'm going to go out of my way to make one that's going to get challenged. That's oh, my plan. Thank you. Good <laughs> luck. I'm going to commit some serious copyright crimes. You're you're in the U.S. Copyright is less enforced than I know. Than in I Japan. can do whatever I you want. Do whatever here. you want here. I'm not going to go to jail for two years. I'm just going <laughs> to steal shit for like the next two months or to the next month. Good just luck stealing stuff left and right. It's uh, it's what you have to do here now because all of the streaming services <laughs> stopped yeah, allowing you to true. share that's passwords. That's also true. Like so. I, it's like you get on the Netflix in America and it's like, wait, what? Where where did all the movies and stuff go? Where, <laughs> why why can't I watch anything? Oh dear. Uh, well, thank you so much to everyone who has purchased anything off that Redbubble. Thank you, everyone who has supported us on Patreon, and thank you for listening. This week, we we're talking about the Great Dictator, Charlie Chaplin's. Uh, I mean, Modern Times was a sound film, but this is really the first time Charlie Chaplin speaks on film, so that's something. It, um, is, it is a jarring thing to hear talkie. him talk. Yeah, like talk, talk. Well, as uh, as the man tells him in the final moments, him talking is the only thing that's going to solve anything. Uh, it is, if you don't know, I mean, it's a very famous movie, so you probably know. Um, it's a war satire, uh, well, an anti-war satire, um, where Charlie... I don't pl- know, is it an... Which one... What is the correct grammar on that? <laughs> is it a war satire? Because, like, if an anti-war satire seems to imply that it's a satire of the concept of anti-war. I suppose that's true. I've got to... I've got to choose my let's words wisely. Let's break this down. Like, forget <laughs> about the movie, okay? Let's... The next two hours... We'll I just... do not want to have a two-hour semantic conversation about how that phrase should be put together. I'm sorry. I will not even entertain that as a joke. Uh, oh, man. But yeah, Chaplin had been working on a uh, film about Napoleon apparently for like 15 years. And at some point, the idea got morphed into, I mean, probably after well, he mean, learned about probably Hitler. Probably what with Hitler uh, coming around yeah, is probably what did that. That, that Reichstag fire. <laughs> he was all like, oh, maybe all my all my Napoleon are work. I yeah. can just make well, it's a like, movie. It, it, right. When you really consider the fact that, like, really the Napoleon reference seems to get more and more outdated as you get further away from that and you get closer to Hitler, right? You're like, well, maybe I should, like, refocus my efforts here. Yeah, sure. So but he does look remarkably like Napoleon as well, like in the pictures, the publicity pictures they had made. Like, showing show the features. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Napoleon, or the <laughs> Chaplin without the mustache, ends up looking pretty much, pretty much. Uh, just like Napoleon too, um, maybe it makes you wonder: was was Hitler Napoleon? <gasps> got in a time machine and uh, 
all he did was uh, grow a mustache, but it was always just greased paint. Isn't that like ninety percent of Warhammer forty k lore? Napoleon. What if Napoleon no, had a like, time isn't, machine? Isn't the, the God Emperor of Earth supposed to have been Jesus and the Buddha and like a bunch of other people? I'd believe it if they just that's threw just in Hitler and Napoleon in there. <laughs> Pat, that's just new. That's just new chronology. Uh, do not Google new chronology. I, you should not. No, that's a, that's a, you will lo- your YouTube will become useless. <laughs> uh, Starting to get into Indiana Jones five. Uh, like spoilers here almost so we're adjacent oh, to it. oh, oh no so. <laughs> i have not seen that it's, it, that's good to know no no it, it doesn't do that but it's like it, it's a very indiana jones movie i thought it was oh, good. good but yeah good. they do have some uh the dial of destiny has some time manipulation sort Ooh. of aspects to it so. well i do love a time travel movie i haven't been able to see it's not it is not a time travel movie okay it's, uh you know it in it just is like you know when like the the arc is opened at the end of the arc things happen yeah. and when they finally get the dial of destiny working things happen so yeah. okay mm. yeah that sounds like a napoleon yeah, and her, but wait, no it's definitely I hope, not, not how like close to bill and ted is it that's like, what i want to know yeah uh, it's just like oh all the whole the gang's all here here's <laughs> napoleon here's <Hitler. laughs> that would have been hilarious if that was the way that it wound <laughs> up uh no, I, I literally give a book was, report? when I was watching the movie, I was literally thinking, are are they just going to have like, be like, you know what we need to do? We need to redo the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So let's do time travel to the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's how we'll defeat the villain <laughs> the same way we defeated him at the end of that. And I was like, if they do that, I will be so mad. They don't do that. But <laughs> oh no, I think, I think that would be if, if Indiana Jones has time travel capabilities, I think tricking all of his enemies to go to the scene at the end of Raiders is one of the best ways he could kill anyone. Yeah, yeah I mean, it does so. seem to be a very effective way to kill your enemies. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you jump back in time, you close your eyes, open your eyes, jump back forward in time. No one ever has to know you're there. There's no one taking an inventory of all of those melted skeletons. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, are there even, yeah, I mean, who knows what's really left, right? Yeah. The question is, is, does God at some point get mad at you? Because it does seem like you are abusing his power at that point. Maybe. maybe. Does he just smite you because you're like, well, he's like, wait a minute now. I gave you a pass the first time. <laughs> How many times am I going to let you come back here and just close your eyes and call it good? Just get hundreds of Indiana Jones with their eyes closed and circling the entire thing. Around, yeah. It's like the uh, uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, like for yes. the modern age, is Charlie Chaplin and Indiana Jones. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, rather than rather than getting like uh, like actual like figures of his like fictional history, like Sherlock Holmes, it's like you get figures of like the 1980s and like yeah. Charlie Chaplin and <laughs> Chaplin. Chaplin's the leader Humphrey of that Humphrey Bogart, team. or for some yeah. reason, like. Ah, that would be great. Yeah, that'll work out. Um, anyway, the great dictator. Um, yeah, so Chaplin started working on it in I think thirty-eight or thirty-nine. He had the final script, start shooting, um, and then some things went down in the real in the real world. Uh, it's nineteen nineteen thirty-nine was a bad time to be making a movie about Hitler. Uh, because news news marches on, <laughs> um, right? Uh, so there was a point where he considered scrapping it, um, and the story is that FDR called him 
and said, no, you have to make this movie. Well, I think FDR was meeting with Jack Warner and Warner sent a letter to Chaplin that said, the president really thinks you should make your Hitler movie. But yeah, the, uh, because Congress was launching investigations uh, into the Hollywood studios, uh, a lot of it anti-Semitically based. Uh, but uh, Warner Brothers released their movie Confessions of a Nazi Spy, mm-hmm. which is a very good 30s movie. It's not a great one, but it's it's quite entertaining. And that so upset the American Nazi Party and their allies uh, that they got their Republican allies in the Senate to start a, a subcommittee looking at like... Uh, you know, uh, uh, political agitation and in like the movie industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and they also got their allies in the house to start a committee that went nowhere because they didn't have a majority, but the committee got started called the house of un-American activities committee was started in response to confessions of a Nazi spy. Interesting. Uh, Mm -hmm. that, and that committee basically, was scheduled to have its first hearing, I think, in the middle of December 1941. And uh, after December 7th, all of their committee meetings were canceled, and there were no meetings of that committee until, like, 1946. Oh, crazy how that happened. Uh, And then, yeah, and then it was suddenly revived once uh, they had their midterms and got a majority. I'm not sure if they got a majority, but they got enough seats in the House that they were able to activate some that committee again uh, yeah. in order to aggressively attack Hollywood because the pro-Nazi people were still in the house and they still hated the Jews of Hollywood. So they really wanted to use it to go after all those Jews and communists. So, and they did, yeah. uh, including eventually Charlie Chaplin. Char- exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So confessions of a Nazi spy. It's a Warner Bros. film from, uh, uh, May, 1939. And it's, it's the first anti-Nazi film? The first explicitly anti-Nazi film? Um, do you it's, know that yeah, to be true or not true? From a major Hollywood studio, it's explicitly yeah. an anti-Nazi because it's in... They got it through the Hayes office because the Hayes office had to approve script concepts before they went into production. So, like, mm-hmm. if they someone said, like, you know, we want to adapt Marquis de Sade, the Hayes office would say, no, you can't. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, like... The Hayes office oftentimes, because right. the production code had a lot of, uh, you can't do anything political uh, that would attack any given political party, um, you know, as part of the production code. Like, that, a lot of people don't realize there was a political element to it as well. And normally, something like Confessions of the Nazi Spy would never have gotten through, but there were exceptions made for stories that were true or ripped from the headlines. And so Warner Brothers got it through basically by saying, hey, this is a true story. It was the biggest news story last year, like that everybody was following for six months across the country. The like the Nazi spy that got captured in America and was like on trial and everything. And so they allowed them to make it. But then when it got released, like Warner Brothers basically lost their ability to, to air pictures anywhere in Europe. Uh, yeah. And then it, and it, all these congressional uh, committees got started in response because now Hollywood was starting to be political. <laughs> right. Hitler, of course, explicitly banned all Warner Brothers films. Um, but the, the film also got banned. I don't know if it was elsewhere. in Germany. It might have been in like Nor- Norway or the Netherlands or someplace that showed it like the they 
the theater just got burnt down. And as a result of that, most of Europe that wasn't under Hitler's control just declined to show like any Warner right, Brothers right, movie right. at that point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, very, uh, powerful, uh, too. <laughs> Everyone's so a coward. <laughs> in, in, into that environment, Chaplin decides he's going to make a movie that explicitly is making fun of Hitler. Yes. Uh, and which, so, I mean, it shows you how, trepidatious he must have been but also how bold of a decision it was and how controversial just making that decision would have been within hollywood and the broader political apparatus of the country at that moment you know he kind of gambled everything on doing it and it's it's pretty remarkable that he did that knowing that it could have ended his career but that he was also okay with that happening if it did right i think that was one of the things that struck me most watching the movie because I hadn't watched it since probably college or so, maybe just after college, was that, you know, this was like written in like 38 or 39 and made in like 39 and, you know, uh, and maybe 40. But like, it's all there other than the fact of like just how horrifying the, the concentration camps were. Like, they know the names and like roles that, hitler's various like top generals played and they have comic versions of them you know in 1939 and with the expectation that everybody in the audience would be familiar enough with like who goebbels was you know or you know whoever else himmler is they're making right. fun of that that the audience would get the jokes like you know you think about we all learn in school a lot about world war Two and like you know the ss and and everything else and that it wasn't just hitler but that it was like the whole nazi apparatus that they built up of the the top leaders and whatnot uh but like clearly they knew a hell of a lot in 1939 uh about how who it was and how bad it was and it's it's just was very striking to be like oh yeah like you know we can't plead in- ignorance because very clearly we knew shit was going down and who was responsible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, how bad it was to an extent, right? Um, Chaplin himself in his biography later claims he did not know that things were worse than what he portrayed them as in the movie. Um, I, I think no one really had. Right. The cup, like, well, no one really expected the concentration camps uh, right. to be death camps the way that they were. They were thinking like World War One prison camps, you know, like, you, yeah. You, and they weren't, you know, even despite all of the people that were escaping and coming out and giving reports of the concentration camps so that that was even in the vernacular in 1939 when they were making this, like they they didn't have a conception of like what like the extermination side of it meant i think i think that even if they had heard that i don't think they really believed it and to a large extent it's taken decades of reinforcement and documentary evidence to get people to believe it and right they still don't believe it yeah and, and even then it sort of fa- it ends up failing right like more, it's, ca- it's, more cases yeah. than it yeah. should right one of the things i think is interesting you kind of bringing that up is what what makes that kind of striking is it's very easy to like when you're watching this movie to like almost forget that it's happening prior to like the US entering the war and things like that this idea that like oh like it doesn't it doesn't feel like a like 
you know, because it, it, it ends up feeling like, because now all this is all information that's sort of by most people taken for granted, right? Like that this is like the situation and all that, like that one has to like sort of, to, to me at least it sort of seems like watching it now, it's easy to forget that it is, you know, because like, you, you, I don't know how to explain, like, trying to articulate what I'm saying, but they, like, you know, we take it as a as a matter of factual point that, like, oh well, yeah, the Nazis are evil. We, we, uh, you know, and you know, but bearing in mind that, like, he's going against the mass of American Nazi party, which was quite, quite influential American Nazi party and things like that. Which is not, like, if you make a movie where the Nazis are the bad guy now, that's not a thing you have to like. Yeah worry about ruining your career you know what i mean or something like that or getting you like you know attacked by a, a committee in congress right you can just do it. You <laughs> you're going to be banned oh, for being too woke that's not as true as it should yeah. be anymore yeah but i mean unfortunately yeah. that that doesn't that sentence that i say that that was true maybe yeah. 10 years ago is maybe uh, not as true as it used yeah to be. i think nonetheless it doesn't feel like a pre pearl harbor movie right and right. I think that's probably because right. Chapman that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, wasn't an American. You know, like he he's from England. Was you know, England was already going through the Blitz at this point, right? Like, right. They they were fully engaged in war. I think maybe right, that's right. why it feels like a World War Two era film, because from Chaplin's perspective, he was making right. a war film, like he was making a a film, a war propaganda film in a sense, almost. Uh, I don't know that he would have thought of it in those terms, but I think his mentality was like, I got to do my part to help out England sort in a way, um, which the rest of right. America didn't get to for a few years. Like uh, I think I, I mentioned into an email right. to Adam that like two cartoons I met, went and rewatched after I watched this were the Donald Duck cartoon, Der Fuhrer's face uh, and the Bugs Bunny cartoon rabbit of Seville where he's, playing the barber and elmer fudd and like they do the 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 rising up chairs right. gag like they do in great dictator and mm-hmm. and then the the donald duck cartoon is the uh the classic der Fuhrer's face song that has definitely some uh, very racist elements in it too but is also hilarious because donald duck is you know uh dreaming he's trapped in nutsy land and uh, is forced to work at a factory making munitions for der Fuhrer. uh and they they like the great dictator they go out of their way to really make fun of of hitler as well as all of his top staff so you know. yeah that that song to Fuhrer's face i'm actually familiar with outside of the cartoon uh because my my father and his father were big fans of spike jones who did a recording of the song uh just i think just before the cartoon came out um like the music was written, they did a recording of it, and then it's actually the reason the cartoon is called Der Fuhrer's Face instead of Donald Duck in Nazi Land, uh, which was his original title, is that the Spike Jones recording of Der Fuhrer's Face was so popular that they renamed it, they renamed the cartoon. Um, and they won uh, won the Oscar for that. Oh. I think it might have been Disney's yeah. like last last time they won the animated short Oscar for a long time uh, yeah. was that one. But it's interesting yeah. that like that's that one's a very clear example of American war propaganda right. or, or a war film made, you know, with propagandic intent. Yeah. Uh, and it's immediately what I thought of watching great dictator as well as like the, the Looney Tune cartoon, which is a post-war film, 
but is using has no political aspect to it at all but is using all of the gags from Chaplin right. repurposing them and turning them up to you know yes. 500 obviously made by someone who loved the great dictator right yes yes oh, ah. I was like watching it just kind of like I hadn't didn't really remember it much rewatching it uh, realized I didn't remember much of it uh, because as I was watching it as about two thirds of the way through when like the Mussolini stuff's all happening I was like oh my god like this is like watching a Mel Brooks film like yes. this is this is like the this is like the missing like Rosetta Stone to Mel Brooks like this is every <laughs> movie he's ever made it's like this this half of the great dictator <laughs> right right uh, so one thing about the cartoons uh, and and sort of I guess Chaplin says in his biography that if he had known the full extent of the death camps, he wouldn't have made the great, great dictator. Um, and he might believe that. I don't know that it, <laughs> if that's actually true. It's certainly something he said at some point. But uh, I was reminded of, uh, of a quote from uh, uh, the black liberation theologian James Cone. Um, James X. Coden says that anger and humor are, the, are like the left arm and the right arm. They complement each other. Anger empowers the poor to declare their uncompromising opposition to oppression, and humor prevents them from being consumed by their fury. And I thought about that in relationship to the movie, that, you know, the full extent of things is angering and should be angering. But uh, approaching that with humor is still mm-hmm. a worthwhile you know, and and Brooks, you brought up Brooks. Brooks remakes uh, uh, <coughs> the Lubitsch to film be, uh, yeah, to be or to not be or to be. Not. Post, you know, obviously post war because his career doesn't get started till post war. Um, you know, there's still there's still approaches, and you know, Brooks also has the the producers, the Nazi and the the ex Nazi and the producers. Don't um, be stupid. And be the a whole. smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. <laughs> yeah. So you know that that. Uh, that mockery of uh, of Hitler, you know, there's a reason Charlie uh, Chaplin was uh, attracted to Hitler as an absurd figure to begin with, too, right? Mm-hmm. He's just uh, he's just naturally absurd in his mannerisms in so many ways, <laughs> and, and as much as Life in Straw tries to tries to film him in a way that makes him look godlike. Uh, <laughs> She very much captures the absurdity of of his right. visual presentation. And that's the thing, right, is that, like, you start digging into, like, really, like, the fundamentals of sort of dictatorship and sort of fascism is, is, at its core, right, requires a certain sort of, like, commitment to an aesthetic that, like, viewed from any outside observer, they're, they're, it's always right. going to be seem ridiculous, yeah. right? Anytime you, you find a sort of, like, we've, we've watched other movies about dictators, and every single dictator that we've ever watched a movie about right. is both... Yeah. And terrifying think, and comedic at the I same think time. You're right, and I think that's what Chaplin recognized that, like, the dictators, especially these two, Mussolini and Hitler, are inherently ridiculous. Like, yeah, and that that you can really use humor right. to tear them down uh, and expose them and make some very incisive, you know, political points, or at least try to take away some of their political power by like changing how they're perceived even subtly for people it's you know that that quote about the right hand and left hand is extremely apt because i think this 
you know, Chaplin hides it well, but this is a very angry movie as much as it is a right. very, very humorous movie. It's, you know, right. it, it, you know, you can kind of see that almost just in the way it uses sound. Like the opening of the movie is all basically a silent movie. It's classic Chaplin. He only uses sound effects comedically. Like when like the, the bomb fall, like squirts out of the end of the, the thing. And then it like, spins around chasing him it's like there's no sound of his feet running there's no other sound effects unless it's a funny sound effect but then when we get to the dramatic point later in the movie when the ghetto is going to be raided and burned out uh chaplin starts using sound dramatically and Mm -hmm. you hear off-screen sound for the very first time you hear off-screen loop group with people shouting and yelling you hear the foley which you haven't heard hardly any foley in this movie at all up until that point but you hear the foley of them uh marching and off-screen glass breaking and everything but all that the picture does is like it goes into that canary but it's just like he's he's changed it midway through the movie and you haven't realized it yet where everything has gone from being comic to being dramatic and it turned on a dime and it's at a point with the point the rating of like the ghetto that he's like most angry about that he does that and i think it's it's woven all throughout the film and it's really really clever and understated and i don't don't know that it's appreciated enough how many ways he's using the the pieces of filmmaking to do those sorts of like balance between anger and humor. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the, the balance between sound and not, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. there's, there's a bonus feature, uh, on the criterion release. That's a TCM, uh, special, uh, called the tramp and the dictator. And it has a lot of problems. Uh, <laughs> so bad. It is so bad. Uh, one of the people they interview uh, is just introduced as a member of Hitler's inner circle, which is obviously not true because he doesn't have a bullet in his brain. But <laughs> uh, but he he gets to talk about how oh no Adolf actually had a had a wonderful sense of humor and like why I don't need to know any of this. Um, but oh, uh, I have so much I could say about that. Like that. I don't know if you watched it, Pat, but the movie, the special feature basically takes the point being that, like, what we really need to do here is both sides, Hitler and Chaplin. Yeah. You know, we we have to show, you know, all the ways that (laughs) Hitler was okay. You know, we don't have to mention all the things that are bad because people already know that. And then, you know, we're also, you know, going to say that, like, you know, Chaplin was not as great as Hitler. (laughs) Like. What? Like, what? 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 The, like, what? I I can't form sentences. Like, what would can what would compel somebody? the rhetorical oh, basis this is for a thing they is needed that to make. Charlie like, Chaplin and Adolf Hitler were born four days apart. They are the same age. They are uh, similar looking people, right? But they grew up in the same time. They are products of the same time. If we want to use that old chestnut of a phrase, uh, and. They are, you know, they are two products of their time who who were very different people, right? Uh, so you and know, it, it somehow manages to depoliticize Hitler because they're yeah. like, we're not going to talk about Hitler's politics, which also means, thankfully, we will not talk about Chaplin's politics. <laughs> right, like, right. like if you're going to 
compare and contrast Hitler and Chaplin, at least talk about the socialism and anti-poverty right. efforts and things that happened that basically defined his career after yeah. City Lights and Modern Times and led to his, you know, exile from the United States. Yeah. That he was like, you know, like, but like, like this this way they were like, oh, we don't we can't talk about all those nasty things that Chaplin believed. Like, we don't want to get political. And then they decide, to be fair, then we shouldn't get political about Hitler. We'll talk about how, you know, the pageantry of, of what he did was was just wonderful. They have they interview someone who was just like, oh, I cheered for Hitler when I was 11. I, I didn't <laughs> yes. know any better. I was 11. Yes. I thought the pageantry was wonderful. <laughs> who is that? Like, who is that British they, woman and why is she there? <laughs> and then they pivot to like, like being like Hitler in the Depression. He was beloved because like he did jobs programs and built wonderful right. things. Right. And it, you're just like, he, you, you guys are kind of missing the whole point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it, they do really just, uh, well, there's even like some subtle rhetorical bullshit that they do at the beginning of the movie when they're just doing the, the alternating, you know, life stories of the two of them where they're like, you know, Hitler wasn't admitted to an arts academy, you know, uh, in, implying that, like, the fact that he wasn't accepted as an artist, you know, sort of is to blame for everything that came after. Or they were like, you know, Hitler uh, stayed at a, a charity that was, uh, you know, primarily funded by Jewish, you know, donors, implying that, you know, the Jews kind of got what they deserved because, like, you know, yeah. supporting charities <laughs> like One of, there's just i was just if you really wanted to pick apart the movie that's i'm being very very unfair you are it's just it was just yeah i was just sitting there like mouth agape half of the time i was watching it like oh one my of the, god one of the first things that that's said in it is explaining why fascism and mussolini in particular were so popular yeah uh, because yeah. the because they really impressed the business owners around the around the world and like, yeah. and presenting that with no other context with no you know it's it's a sort of classic journalistic approach of mm-hmm. not openly condemning the thing that everyone already knows is bad, I guess. But that yeah. ultimately leads to, what you, like you said, sort of a both sidesing of what's going on. Yeah, anyway. and uh, Chaplin doesn't both sides in the movie. No, no Instead, he he's like he does like Despicable Me, like, banana, banana, banana. banana. Like, yeah. that is the appropriate response to like, <laughs> right, right. someone like Mussolini. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, one thing that is brought up in The Tramp and the Dictator, though, that I, I did think was rhetorically interesting and, and why why I brought it up now, um, was pointing out that when, uh, when Hitler first started trying to utilize mass media, it was still the silent era. And... Uh, they say that his first excursions into movies, into film, in the silent era were bad because no one reacted to well. It was like, it's that classic story about uh, uh, about the first uh, Nixon-JFK debate where Nixon's just covered in flop sweat and no one laughed because everyone who watched it on TV voted for JFK. Everybody who listened to it at the radio voted for voted for Nixon is the classic story. Uh, it's also a very self-serving story. And, it is, yes. You know, I, I wouldn't put it past being extremely true, but, yeah. but also, like, you don't need to make it... You don't need to make excuses for why anybody loses a debate to JFK because right, everybody right, is going right. to lose a debate to right. JFK. Absolutely. Like, 
like yeah. if you're on TV against him, it's like it's like trying to lo- like win a debate against George Clooney, you know, on TV. <laughs> right. Like you're just going right. to lose. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, the uh, Oh, I lost my train of thought. Go ahead. <laughs> that's okay. But uh but yeah, so so Hitler uh really starts to uh actually appear charismatic when he starts doing uh, audio. And Well, and, that's I yeah. actually reacted to that as well. I will it made me, I never looked it up, but it made me wonder, like, I'm sure Hitler used radio a ton in Germany. Right. And that's what got him popular or like how he communicated before sound yeah. film. Like, you know, the, the, and that would have been a much more mass media than right. silent newsreels. The only way that people in England or America would have had contact with Hitler visually would have been silent newsreels. And he would have seemed very comical. But I think within England, radio was probably his friend because his yeah. oration is very right. striking and memorable. Yeah. So, and of yeah. course, Chaplin, Chaplin takes issue with, with uh, the foreign press presentation of Hitler in the film. Uh, with the uh, with the radio commentary during the first speech that is being presented <laughs> by uh, by the regime's official translator. Oh uh, my god, that yeah. that oh, that's so funny. And now right. the Führer makes yeah, reference to the Jewish people. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I just was wondering, like, when you guys talk about Salo, do your microphones bend backwards? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Ah, uh, man. Um, I wish. No, the whole sequence is very good. Um, yeah. yeah. The rhetorical point the Tramp and the Dictator is making there is to contrast the fact that Chaplin himself was reticent to embrace sound uh, mm-hmm. until much later than anyone else did. And we talked about that with Modern Times as well, um, where Modern Times introduces sound as a uh, as mechanical, as artificial. You know, all the sound we hear is pre-recorded or through a video screen or or at least all the talking we hear, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and even here, you know, the majority of it is pantomime or foreign gibberish. Um, oh, but Chaplin. the foreign gibberish is so brilliant. But the like, foreign gibberish is very funny. Like, oh, yeah. the, they're sauerkraut and the kinder. <laughs> the <laughs> the Katzenjammer kinder. <laughs> The amount of times he just says Wiener Schnitzel through this movie is very good. It's every uh, time it's funny too. Yeah, so. yeah, no, it's a- yeah, and then obviously you know building up to um, to Chaplin as really as Chaplin giving the final mm-hmm. speech, right? Um, and as I said, uh, the other character saying, "No, you've got to use your words." One thing I forgot about this movie uh, was that not only is Chaplin is is uh, the barber caught up. Uh, and confused for Hitler and and put up on stage, uh, but Hitler is caught by the concentration camp guards and, and presumably just disappears. Like, yeah, I totally didn't remember that. Yeah, I, I did not remember that. That's happening. brilliant. It's brilliant. Just disappears without a word. Uh, <laughs> speaking of angry things in the movie, uh, <laughs> the I was. I think because this uh, Prince and the Pauper side of it has been done so much, especially as this movie has influenced movies that did this yes. sort of like trick. Uh, I was shocked rewatching it that like literally nobody in the movie makes a comment about their similarity until the very end right? when they right? mistake him. Like, 
Right. Yes. Well, except for the movie itself, which right? They at the very beginning, probably had to do disclaimer, right? Because like, which yeah. it, which yeah. sort of because is like otherwise people are going right. to be expecting it constantly. So, but yeah, like I was like going through the whole movie, and no one ever made a comment on it. It wasn't until right in at the ending, I was like, oh, that's that's kind of brilliant. Like, like no, no, but he's invisible except for when he's not invisible, and no one really sees it. Like you know, not even the people that see him, and it's. And it's the uniform that they see. Right. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Suggesting that it's the uniform they see for Hinkle as well. Right. Yeah. Well, right. It, it's it's playing into the thing that like we've sort of identified that the Chaplin is, is well aware of is sort of, again, the sort of aesthetics of, of fascism and the idea that like, yeah, the uniform is what makes not, not the uniform itself, but but the aesthetics are what make this this whole thing work. So as soon as you put. This person in a different costume. Now this person is is suddenly, you know what I mean? Like it, it's sort of identifying the idea that like the costume and all and all the pomp and circumstances yeah. are part of what makes this whole thing work. And without it, it's nothing. Yeah. And with it, it's everything. Well, it's right? like uh, it's like in Star Wars. Like you you can put on this you can put on the stormtrooper outfits and go it's anywhere you want yeah. in the Death Star. So <laughs> absolutely, yeah, exactly. And no and and the only person who ever will question you is is a person who is not uh, right. like ingrained in that aesthetic, right? You'll you'll run Aren't into a, a princess who's like, "Hey, wait a minute, you look short." But otherwise, yeah, exactly. But otherwise, no one will ever question it, is, it because something the aesthetics that are what's, the what matters. Dave Filoni right? shows have carried on that I love that they carry on. You see it in because uh, I've rewatched Rebels like over the last or rewatched I watched for the first time the animated show Re- Rebels that he executive produced because uh, Ahsoka the new show will be coming out this month mm-hmm. um, and uh, I all got started on it because they put Return of the Jedi in theaters again and I went and saw that and I just wound up watching nothing but Star Wars like the, the movies and the prequels and then the Clone Wars series and Rebels for like the next two months <laughs> um but that you see it constantly in Rebels. You see it in the new Obi Wan Kenobi miniseries, like where they're just like, all you have to do is put on a uniform, and mm-hmm. like you can sneak anywhere you want. <laughs> it's like I just one of the things I love that they they carry through. So, <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> this is very uh, so a very small detail that came up in. Uh, I think one of the one of the bonus features uh, is that all of the signs in the ghetto when we first arrive um, are written in Esperanto, which is its own weird take that to Hitler. <laughs> like like that's a that's a take that deep cut, uh, uh, as apparently Hitler hated <laughs> Esperanto and wrote about in Minecraft. Uh, Minecraft wrote about in Mein Kampf uh, that. Uh, uh, <laughs> That Esperanto was a tool of the Jewish diaspora. Uh, that's just like, uh, yeah, uh, because once once you get on the anti-Semitism train, uh, it's Jews all the way down. Uh, everything you hate is is a Jewish plot. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, to be fair, Stalin also hated Esperanto. <laughs> but uh, was was that like a? Uh, supposed to be a universal language that was yes. like invented for the coming utopia. So. Yes, that is the history of Esperanto. Is that it was developed uh, as a language that would be easy to 
learn by basically anyone who spoke a language of uh, of the Indo-European family. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it was it was meant to be a uh, a universal language. I have friends who speak Esperanto. I have never never bothered to learn it myself. <laughs> it sounds like uh, learning Klingon. <laughs> it's it's a little bit but there's there is an international uh i i think there's probably more people who speak esperanto than klingon um Uh, well it's 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 uh it's the equivalent for philology nerds like you know like star trek nerds learn klingon philology learn nerds you know learn uh esperanto so (laughs) yeah um right right uh (laughs) No matter what, nerd's gonna nerd. So exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, so Hitler specifically called out Esperanto in Mein Kampf, so Chaplin had the signs written in Esperanto. Um, there's no lines delivered in Esperanto, so I don't, I don't know. But uh, um, Esperanto is also just significantly foreign-looking to any any uh, Indo-European language, so. Uh, so it might just exist since it's all the written stuff that's in Esperanto. It's sort of like, you know, all of the all of the fake German from any '80s television show, um, where where it's just like "der stop" or right. whatever, you know, on the stop signs. Um, so it's essentially, you know, just uh, a language that that will be viewed by anyone who sees the movie as something that's familiar enough, but still foreign to them i think unless they speak esperanto which you know the intelligentsia did at the time i suppose but uh <laughs> but yeah i just I, I just thought it was such a weird a weird deep cut to, to throw that in yeah um given everything else that's going on i thought the uh the two guys that had playing his hitler's right hand men were such a comedic highlight like oh yeah that, no, but... like it's you know you often see in the other silent comedians that they would have co-stars that really like would you know uh comedically share the load with the star like uh yeah and uh especially if there was like a lot of pratfalls or something but like you don't see that in chaplin's films as much because he was you know the tramp is always the one that's taking the fall. Um, <laughs> that's half of what makes it funny. Uh, and uh, I guess maybe in the gold rush, he has some really great co-stars uh, in terms of like sustained scenes, but like those two guys were such an excellent, like yin and yang of like scary, funny and like ridiculous funny. And it created two fun contrasts for him to play different elements of Hinkle off of the two different kinds of things that they were doing. Right. And of course the herring provides uh, ample opportunity for us to laugh at the Germans as well. Right. Uh, For, for (laughs) the bulletproof, (laughs) the bulletproof suit. And then the guy jumping out the window, all of the, all of the innovations. Those are amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all the what is it, the like Wunderwaffen or whatever that's just like the weirdest nonsense you've ever heard of, and then they all just <sighs> fail miserably and and then you combine that with the way it interacts with the army when they're at the at the, the parade and like 
they need to one up the Mussolini stand in by being like, <laughs> we've moved on to flying dreadnoughts now because it's like, he's like, you know, <laughs> tanks that go underwater and fly in the air. And it's like, oh, no, 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 we're past that. It's like uh, all this just dumb shit that, like, you know, which again, it's 1940. It's a really shocking thing to see how even the idea of these, like, insane Nazi inventions had, like, penetrated the, the sort of the zeitgeist, at least enough to yes. make. Mo- yeah. like, to make jokes about it that it's like i think i didn't even realize because that's the thing you think of as like you know especially if you've like seen accidentally seen too much hi- uh, history channel you think of it as a sort of post-war like look at what the the soviets found in a bunker in blah 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 place yeah. or like look what the americans found in this place it's like oh no people are well aware even in like 1939 1940 yeah that they've got a bunch of harebrained well, and fucking inventions that are not going to do anything at war at all whoever could get like the big well, right. the, the Germans were obviously the experts with the V2 rockets and right. like actually like long range rockets. But, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the Germans and the British and the Americans and the Japanese were all in a, a major arms race in terms of who could get the longest range for airplanes so that mm-hmm. like an aircraft carrier could have like, right. you know, a 3000 mile range from where like they were like launching planes, you know, rather than a 1000 mile plane range or like maybe that's not the right example because like, you know, like a really big bomber, like if they could get it to a 3000 mile range, they could launch from, you know, uh, all kinds of different places to attack Europe. Like they could launch, you know, they could attack any point in Europe from England, um, you know, but you can't land a really big bomber on an aircraft carrier because the wingspan limitations of planes that'll fit on an aircraft carrier. So like right. those are necessarily going to have smaller ones, but any improvements they did in range for, you know, any kind of plane were going to ripple throughout the rest of the, like the, the fleet. And it was, it was a huge, like there was uh Disney even did like one of their propaganda, like, you know, pieces on it called victory through air power. Um, that like they were like taking this book that was very popular in the 30s from like a, uh, you know, a, an aviation expert saying like we have to invest in like in creating the you know the the best you know biggest airplanes possible because we're only going to win if we have the biggest and best airplanes because you know bombs can the idea was bombs can only be so big like you know you can make a you know a, a 2000 pound bomb but you can only fit two of them on a plane and you know they only have so much destructive power and the the real way to win it is with the you know the range of the planes being able to like keep a constant bombardment going uh he wasn't wrong but he was also made obsolete by the atomic bombs so. yeah right well and and even then we get into like the long distance right like not until we get into true mm-hmm. like sort of ICBM and like proper rocketry, to, where does it not still become important to right. be able to fly it basically around the Earth, right? Uh, I'm it's I'm fascinated because this movie starts basically with like yeah, that's what made me think about pre, it, right? You know, a World War One super weapon, right? It starts with what what is a parody of the Paris gun, and and the idea that we can mm-hmm. you know shell Paris from or well, well, I, I don't Notre know if they Dame. refer to they Paris directly or not. Notre yeah. Dame. yeah. yeah. And the joke. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so the idea is, I mean, this is a, and so we see a sort of weird continuation, right? Because in many ways, the, the, the two, the two characters come into, not into interaction that way, but like, you know, Charlie Chaplin's sort of, the sort of main character, 
has many of the problems that happen to him are the direct, re- in some way or another, could be seen as a direct result of like interacting with that. That uh, you know, he he his whole life mm-hmm. sort of changes course because of that, that that interaction. And then later on, you've got the you know the other version of you know his other character, the actual like the dictator, sort of constantly rolling right. out these because like the Paris gun was a stupid idea then too, right? Like these like these. Wonder Weapon ideas are always just the, the dumbest thing, yeah. and, and they start will, off just immediately. I will point out, for all the harebrained uh, German innovation we do see in this movie uh, and existed in real life, um, it wasn't the Germans who created the Pandandrum. Uh, the Pandandrum is, is truly the greatest so, in, in British and American uh, uh, so Adam, it's collective action. It's a action. piece that... Um, oh, there was, there was a, one movie we watched... A documentary on the British, British. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've yeah. seen, I had seen the thing like a million times, but yeah, in like but what it the is, history channel. What it is, is I, just two put a large wagon wheels with a bomb as their, as as their axle, <laughs> and then and then no, on every so, spoke, it's so much on every spoke is a rocket. Man. It's not even what it's. <laughs> yeah, it is a bomb. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a it's rockets. It's yeah, every spoke is a rocket, and the goal is to like wheel it up onto the beach at Normandy like it'll like wheel itself off the water in of the beach on Normandy and like explode and detonate like the obstacles it's insane and every time you ever see a demonstration of it like an old movie around old footage, like, like made by the, the department yeah. of defense it's doing it's it's doing something insane <laughs> yes. and it looks like it's going to kill even the cameraman it's 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 the most dangerous yeah. looking thing you'll the ever most, see the most it's famous video of it i think it almost invention. kills a dog it's yeah. It so is, it's, so oh. the, Ger- the Germans didn't have a, mon- a monopoly on on insane World War Two brain. Regardless, you see it and you like it, it's that it's just poking fun of that. I mean, but to a certain extent, right? Like the Great Dictator is Charlie Chaplin specifically attacking the Nazis very very like explicitly, but he's also you know by doing things like poking fun at these like stupid wonder weapons and stuff like that. He right. is al- it's also an, an anti-war film too. You know what I mean? It's also like I mean the ending speech is not exp- is not specifically right. an anti-Nazi speech. Right. It is an anti-war speech, right? And like so, you know, by yes. and of course that's going to get him in trouble later, obviously. Uh, but like the idea, like you know, when you poke fun at the Nazis for doing this, you're also poking fun at like. Because you're gonna, these people are gonna someday down the road, people are gonna see the Panjan drum, and you know, <laughs> on TV or whatever, and they're you're poking fun at that too, right? You're poking fun at all yeah. of this dumb shit. Yeah. Well, that you've cooked and up. In terms to try to of kill it being an anti-war film, it's it very smartly never shows any war footage. Like you see the the gun misfire right. at the beginning, uh, and then. Chaplin gets lost in the fog and then they have a very comical airplane flight. It's not like there's a lot of, you're not really seeing any combat shooting, you know, there's no drama, you know, war drama being celebrated. And even in like, they're making fun of the big silly gun at the beginning. And then the, the latest innovations that they have for the Germans for Chaplin are also, you know, carefully chosen to be absolutely ridiculous and then, you know, he doesn't show us a parade. He doesn't even right. show us, like, the joke of, like, you know, you know, Hinkle's various things, like, falling apart or failing in the parade. Uh, like, we don't get the pageantry. The right. war pageantry is denied us, which is, like, a very, very astute thing to do. You know, it keeps it from 
treading right. into that like depiction becomes endorsement area. I think the only person that dies is like the the right. two people like well, that very, he shoots because of the bulletproof vest and that that jumps out the window. <laughs> so, well, right there's the one there's the one the one Jewish um, yeah that's true shop owner so. gets shot by a Nazi, and but beyond that right like. You really end up, yeah. There's an idea too. Like he seems to have this concept, which I think is very important. That like, if there's Nazis on screen, well, not they're Nazis, Nazis, but whatever they're, you know, whatever, you know, yeah, exactly. Like whenever there's a Nazi, whenever there's Nazis on screen, they all have to be doing something stupid or imminently about to do something very, very stupid, right? They always have to look like fools because you. you I think he understands that idea that like to even have them on screen and not being idiots would be. The yeah. sort of almost like mm-hmm. edge on endorsement, right? Like, like anytime they're on screen, they're being made fools of, like in some capacity or another, right? Like, you know, they they try to do the pageantry, and whenever they do the pat, try to do the pat, you know, for example, they try to welcome Mussol- the Mussolini uh, stand in, and you know, the whole train scene back and forth, like no one, they're they're constantly trying to set up for the pageantry, and anytime they're trying to do it, it's interrupted and ruined by the fact yeah. that like well they're all well, idiots i right? also so wonder they mentioned in, like, one of the special features or maybe it's the commentary someone says like oh i think the 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 crappy special effects here in this train scene is maybe the film's weakest point and what you were saying just now makes me think maybe it was the point because you see modern times and you know that he can do projection and special effects that are so good. They're seamless today. Or if you don't know to look for them, like forced perspective things and whatnot. And, you know, there's other little bits like when they're on rooftops and whatnot that you wouldn't, that are as good as the stuff done in modern times. And then you get to the train station and it is comically bad. Like, like, you know, but yeah, Right, and that wouldn't and, even be a hard yeah, one to and do. Like, like it would you know, not every, be difficult. You know, buddy could shoot train station trains arriving and whatnot. Like it's, it feels like it's deliberately done to, to make them look bad. To like not even give him the pageantry of like, you know, train is a big, strong, powerful piece of machinery that always looks good on camera. Chaplin even makes that look ridiculous in Hinkle's Country a hundred movies a year did that like at cheap 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 abbott and costello movies did that you know like (laughs) right so i think the only reason you wouldn't do that is because you don't want to give them the satisfaction of even making Mm -hmm. the train look good right because it's worth noting that there are special effects you mentioned the um the rooftop but that the that stand-in for the paris gun has to be a special effect at some point because it's so fucking but it's huge. Not, if there's, it's got to be there's a map home video footage. I think they right? just built a big ass like uh, mod, the big ass model, but they yeah. wanted it oh, to really? look cartoony. So, but so it's probably just all made out of like plaster. And, right, like, right. Yeah. Well, so I mean, it looks cartoony, but it doesn't look because it's trying mm-hmm. to talk about a little bit more his- history rather than like the Nazis themselves. It doesn't look bad in the way the trains because pointing out not just the trains but also when they're marching towards Austerlich or whatever they call it the the tanks in the background and stuff look like garbage they look like cardboard cutouts right they all and and it's not i don't think because they couldn't make a realistic looking tank yeah. it's because they don't they, want yeah to, they right? don't like, want they it look, to look like children's scary toys. they don't want it to look real they don't want it to look inspiring you know they want it to look ridiculous, right? Exactly. Well, because you do want you, 
Right. You run into that. I think he understands that you run into that risk. That if you, as soon as you make it look like inspiring or realistic, you're going to have people like, isn't that cool? I should like that aesthetic appeals to me. And he knows that the aesthetic is part is a big part of well, the appeal fascists. of fascism. And so making it look good is going to automatically, you're going to just, you're going to rat you're going to yeah. accidentally well, do their work for them, right? And, like almost immediately. You know, people that would might sympathize with fascists love war films for that reason. They love the coolness of war films. It's why right, Rambo right. two and three are nothing like first blood where first blood is like about him being against like right, you know, right, walking right. through a small Oregon town and getting hassled because he's homeless. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> killing all of like the local, like Oregon posse, uh, like, you know, and then the the follow up Rambo movies are all about like let's let's go kill anti American bad guys and like right. rah rah fascism, like it's it's yeah. yeah. So. I wonder I wonder if the train stuff is maybe a reference to something else he had seen, maybe another Raffenstrahl work. Um, I'm not familiar with anything it might be referencing. I think it I might think be it's just the pompous like yeah. taking a stab at how pompous like officials can be yeah like it's it's literally a whole sequence that's like making well, fun of their ceremonies like you know yeah well and also i wonder if by that point the sort of weird myth of mussolini making the trains oh, yeah. one time had already right. sort of pervaded in like sort of absolutely because the, the they already so like make the idea that this train cannot fucking get into the station <laughs> right. to save its right. life is it's very even funny. more funny because right? especially because people i think in the 40s would still remember that like Oh, but Mussolini makes the trains run on time was a sarcastic joke because, like, the idea right, was right, that right, like right. trains never ran on time under Mussolini's, like, you know, right. regime, right, and right. so like it was literally just sarcasm that everybody understood from yeah. context. And then, like, and so right, now right. you have like both sidesers, like you know, the New York Times would be like, "Yes, Mussolini, but he did make the trains run on time because." That's what penetrated right, no, right, through, right. not the sarcasm. Right, not the sarcasm. Right. Yeah, so to literally well, have Mussolini's train take 20 minutes to just stop. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and just the idea that, like, you would want to, you know, make it just as ridiculous as possible, right? Like, this is, like, it's not just it's not just not working. It's not working comedically mm-hmm. badly, right? Just yeah. at all times. Yes. Yeah. It's like so uh, well, it's like in Spaceballs when he gets beamed and he turns up backwards. <laughs> yes, yes. Why didn't anybody tell me my ass was so big? <laughs> <laughs> I do love that joke. It's very good. I haven't watched Spaceballs in a long time. I, my, I think I might. Do. I watched it with my kids not that long ago, and they really, really liked it. I, I need to rewatch I'm sure it. They like, did. The last time I watched it was the night I came home from the night that Rise of Skywalker opened, and uh, I was so angry. I was like. I can't even get on the internet. <laughs> the only thing I can do right now is like watch Spaceballs and watching Spaceballs. And it got to the, like, they've gone to plaid. I was like, yeah, that was the whole of rise of Skywalker. The whole movie was like, we've gone to plaid. Ludicrous speed. Go. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. They're derailed. Star Wars on the mind. That's all right. No. <laughs> I, I now now I'm thinking about Spaceballs. We need to stop thinking um, about Spaceballs. Is, yeah. Um, now, we, now we've 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 we've, we've gone on a so different path. The now. guy playing Mussolini is fantastic at playing a, Mus- a Mussolini oh, yeah. parody. It's very good. Um, the the food fight scene is also very good. Um, 
the rubber spaghetti. Just all of them. Uh, everything with Mussolini at the palace. From the, I, from I, the barber I, chairs I lo- to yeah. him coming in the wrong door. And oh, my God. Oh, it's so the funny. The setup it's for that so is funny. so good. It's like, yeah. I, I and I, I love that like look I, everything about it is so funny, but that that comedically tiny chair is just the <laughs> funniest thing in the world to me. It's so small, it's so uh, funny. The idea that this person would just like I don't know, it's just so good. It's it's yeah. very funny. I I laughed really hard. Although I have to say, my kids thought like because I I watched part of the movie with my 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 kids and part of it not because I watched it in like seven different chunks over the last <laughs> day and a half. Uh, but yeah. like um, the part where. Uh, like my my kids really 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 like the beginning with the uh, the plane ride. The, they thought the plane ride was just so <laughs> funny. Like when it's upside down and the water starts shooting up into his face, they it just they could not stop laughing. They talked about it for like the entire day because it's just it's so funny. And the watch just keeps shooting up in the air every time. It's, it's so yes. funny. Uh, I I haven't shown this to my kids yet, but uh, they have seen Modern Times. Which they liked so much, they voluntarily like watched it again a, a few weeks later. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, they were very excited to yeah. watch this, and I and they they only lost interest, I think, because they ran it. They they ran into Grandma and Grandpa, and were yeah. like, "Well, we know what's more important here: Grandma exactly. and Grandpa." Are. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The. Uh, yeah. But I think I will sh- wind up showing it to them because, uh, like, because I think they would they would really like love it and get the comedy and stuff. And then my older one, who's starting third grade you know, has gotten some lessons on World War Two and stuff. And right, so right. there's things there that we've talked about. So, um, yeah. So. They've also seen City Lights <laughs> and Gold Rush. And they didn't like Gold Rush, but they loved City Lights. But they liked City Lights, but they loved Modern Times. Yeah, that Modern <laughs> Times is what did it for, for the... For my kids, that's why they were like, "Okay, yeah, we can watch a Chaplin film. This is good." And the, right. my because my <laughs> youngest son can't remember his name. He's like, "The guy, the guy who walks like this and just started walking around the room." And I'm like, "Yep, that's the guy. Uh-huh. Like, you got it. You got it. You got well, the man." Yeah, that's the funny thing too. Is like my daughters afterwards did like the Chaplin walk. Like, oh no, the, yeah, it's it's so it's good. Amazing how fa- like well, and also it's something that we've seen a hundred times in movies that came after this because it's just was such a part of the cultural vernacular. That like you know in Sunset Boulevard she does like a little chaplain walk for a gag and you know and yeah right uh, and like like the just he is so appealing and so instantly iconic that like they did it as well like you know ninety right. years well, later well, like right it's uh and oh my god there was like I feel like the uh, some of the moments in like modern times just like made my kids laugh so hard. I, I never heard them laugh that hard. Yeah. It's just yeah. like though the one thing that would be truly amazing because I've seen modern times with an audience before and it's wonderful, but it would be amazing to see modern times with an audience full of like kids, like, you know, yes, like five yeah. to 10 years old that are like two thirds of the audience and just hear them like lose their shit completely. Well, yeah. And I, I wish that were possible because I think it would be one of the most incredible experiences you could ever like experience in a theater. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is amazing. Like, it's just like, you know, and I've, I've encountered, you know, I've run into that because I do show my kids a fair amount of comedies, right? And like, you know, we watch Spaceballs and they were like, oh, this is it. But like, yeah, they, the, the cackling you can get out of, out of like, the pure, like the purely like something about those pratfalls and all those sight gags. They're just so 
instantly click for like the, or, that, you know, for like, anybody, right? Or like my youngest, who's five, when we watch City Lights and the the drunk guy swallows the whistle or maybe it's chaplain that swallows the whistle and there's like a few minutes of like him like just like whistle like hiccup whistle joke <laughs> right, right, yeah. she lost it left herself yeah, like yeah. silly like it was yeah. <laughs> it was just well, spectacular yeah, it's just, to watch you know, it's just, it's, react to the, it <laughs> the gags are so perfect right like it, it's you know yeah because like they were they were losing it at the the coins and the cake on this one and the, cause oh. the coins just like keep coming out and it's like <laughs> it just died it's so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can right. see why he would cut that scene because it's so superfluous. And then I also see, right. you know, you have to have it back in because you need one more moment of comedy before you pivot into the ending. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. You, yeah. You just need to, like, you know, the movies, the balance of this movie has to be just right. Right. Because especially when you consider just how intense the subject matter is. Right. Mm hmm. That you 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 screwed the balance in this, and just no one would ever would ever want to watch it, right? Like, yeah, it would just right. Well, you run the risk of being so comedy focused that you lose the messages you're trying to get across, yeah. right? And I think that's the one thing that I was really impressed that the movie achieves watching it this time is that, like, you know, I vaguely remember that Chaplin gives a big speech to end the movie, and then and then like that's the end of the movie, but like. I was very, like, kind of amazed afterwards thinking about it, like how the movie very carefully gets you to the point where you you can hear that speech from him. You know, it's not like that's the, the anger and humor, you know, two hands balance, right? Like, it's like, it's bringing you to a place where he can make that speech, where you, like, feel like he has to make that speech. Uh, you know, even if that speech doesn't go over for a lot of people, probably the people that you know are all asleep like the you know the little barber has been asleep and like just aren't aware of what's happening um and need to right. wake up as well but the movie is very feels like it's very carefully structured to bring the audience to a place where maybe they can hear what he's saying and like also like where it has earned the right to say that at the end and i, I think it's it's very much building towards that moment throughout and manages to get there which is very impressive because you know it is sometimes a relief when, you know, a movie can actually say what it means rather than having to uh, couch it in metaphor or like or put it into a more elaborate dramatic scene like didacticism right. is not something that is very good 90 percent of the time. But also it sometimes is a relief when it's needed. You know, like rather than like, you know, because otherwise sometimes you can lose the point or like, you know, sometimes it just needs to be said. So and I, that's how right. I took that ending. So Rule, rules of the game could have used a little more didactic. To some I, honestly, <laughs> it took me until like my third viewing that I actually like, like, and I was also in like my 30s that when I watched it and I was yeah. all of a sudden like, oh, I get it now because, you know, the time i saw it on my own and the time i saw it like when i was in college like i probably was like half asleep half of the time when watching right. it because right. like just yeah. struggling to stay awake through it but like you know like when i watched it again a few years ago i was like oh wow like this is i don't understand how i missed what this movie was when i watched this twice beforehand when i was like you know 18 or like you know 22 and 
and yeah, I think the lack of like that didacticism is some of that. Um, but you know that, you know, it's not necessarily there verbally in Grand Illusion, uh, which is what probably the first movie you guys watched for this. Um, but, uh, you know, the structure of Grand Illusion is, is more didactic than, than rules of the game in terms of what it's saying about, about war and class and, and everything. Um, it does it all visually, I feel like more like, whereas what Chaplin does here is Chaplin talks. <laughs> right. Now the, uh, the ending speech is a beautiful piece and it's gone viral multiple times in the last seven years or so in the U S um, <laughs> since 2016 with various bed a... music to it. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what happened in 2016 to make people start uh, thinking about this speech. Chaplin apparently meant it as just sort of generally humanitarian uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee definitely found it to be communist-leaning. Um, it's weird how... I feel like we've had this com- <laughs> this conversation a lot, Adam, where there's this weird phenomenon where, like, people d- identify themselves in things that are... You know, like, <laughs> we've, done, we've done it with the Nazis multiple times where they're like, this is anti-Nazi, and it's like... Is it, or are you guys just are you just telling on yourselves right, right. now? And I feel I'll, like if you look at Chaplin's movies, it's like, sure they have a lot of socialist sympathies in them, and he was, you know, himself like an advocate of that. But like, they're also a lot just about hunger. Like you know that mm-hmm. is like one right. of like the universal things about the Tramp is like just dealing with hunger in the 1920s or the 1910s or the 30s, and it's just like I feel like. Yeah, he was probably a socialist, but like in terms of like what he really wanted policy wise, it was probably anti hunger stuff, anti poverty things. Right. And like in terms of socialism, that's such like the benign side of things. Like, you know, but Chaplin literally like started United Artists with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks to become, to own the means of production, like to actually own it himself and become the ultimate capitalist right he would own his own films like rather than the studio being his boss and the studio owning everything he would be the owner like he didn't make all of his employees the owner he made himself the owner like calling him a socialist in that respect when he was very much a capitalist and how he pursued his own business interests is just it's so absurd so. right well and it's it is that sort of it is that sort of classic telling on yourself sort of scenario right where you're like like the idea saying the words we should end hunger is like seen as like an indictment of your system or something right is is sort right of, well, think, you know you, have, get, like, uh, you still have republicans fighting it now where they're just like we can't pay for school lunches i'm like the hell you can't <laughs> like right. we found out how cheap that is <laughs> like in the last few years with the pandemic and like right. it should be absolutely universal like but like there's still like so much resistance to that idea. It's very frustrating. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I said this uh, in a Facebook post that that I reread a couple of days ago. Um, I think probably because it popped up in the memories. But a, a few years ago, uh, L.A. spent uh, an immense amount of money in police overtime clearing out a park of a home of a homeless encampment. Uh, Echo Lake, and uh, 
And ultimately, by their own admission, the bill for that was enough money that they could have given every unhoused individual they displaced $30,000. Uh, $10,000 is how much a year it would take to uh, solve homelessness uh, on an individual level. Yeah, well, um, at least we threw the council member that ordered that sweep out of office in the last election. Hey, good job. But it's good not job. like the replacement has been, <laughs> right. you know... Better, yeah. Has had the votes on council to be much better. There's really only like yeah. three, maybe four progressives on the council. Um, that doesn't surprise me. And um, yeah, like most of them are all Republicans that, you know, run as Democrats because the, they can't get elected unless they're Democrats. <laughs> right. Um <laughs> Like, uh, LA City Council is like one of like the most like right wing like organizations in California. <laughs> uh, uh, not that major I'm, city not councils that, are not that I'm, I'm generally I'm bitter like that. about the our city council. Yeah. Uh, it's not my city council anymore, but and yeah. uh, just a ridiculously corrupt and ineffective. Like even like. Project Home Key, they they were given millions and millions of dollars to house uh, people in hotels when hotels were empty during the pandemic. And yeah. the, the council deliberately, and they'll tell you this, deliberately dragged their feet uh, and sent most of the money back unused because they didn't want to create a precedent of homeless people being allowed in hotels. The hotels yeah, wanted, a... wanted them in there, right. and they just tried as hard as they could to not implement it, yeah, it, because that, yeah, it's, oh, it's infuriating. That happened all over the country. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know. Where, where, yeah, where the hotel owners were absolutely willing to take government money to house people mm-hmm. when their hotels were empty. Uh, yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, one thing about the final speech is that it is the second draft of the ending of this movie, apparently, uh, and the original ending, uh, which we get a little peek at. In one of the bonus features, which is color footage, silent color footage shot by Sidney Chaplin, Chaplin's uh, half-brother, Charlie's half-brother. Um, the original ending just had all of the soldiers throw down their weapons and start dancing with each other. Uh, Bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that was in response to the speech or response to some speech, uh, but it is definitely... Uh, we definitely get a different ending here. It, uh, uh, it, if that, if you had the soldiers had that response to that speech, it makes the speech as ridiculous as Hinkle has right. been throughout the whole movie. Right, right. Which is why you can't have that ending. So yeah. Whereas you know the way it ends is full of hope. You know, Hannah, lift your head up, uh, and. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the, the ending of this movie is fantastic. Uh, I, of course, I, I love the speech. Um, I think the the speech is... <laughs> it is anti-greed. I think there's enough in the speech of its humanitarianness that Charlie definitely meant it as just generally humanitarian, but you can, le- you can re- read a lot of liberal or left uh, politics oh, into it sure. if, you, if you want to, certainly. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's the peak of FDR's powers. Like everybody who isn't a psycho Republican (laughs) is is like a left leaning Democrat because like they've been through the depression and seen what it took to pull it out. And like, you know, 
he's advocating for the new deal basically in some right. respects. So, right. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, it's a very anti-dictator speech, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just, yes, the speech does implore soldiers to throw down their weapons, but if it had ended with them dancing instead, it yeah, would it would have been, been a bit, maybe a bit overboard. Huh? Yeah. When I saw that, I actually thought of the end of Salo, which has the uh, has the uh, the boys who were acting as guards dancing with one another as they overwatch from the tower above uh, the uh, the mass murder that is going on in the courtyard. Doesn't um, doesn't it end with like some like one of the boys is picks up binoculars to watch the, yes. the courtyard and one then of, turns around and looks straight into ca- the camera with the binoculars so that you're like, oh, you, the audience watching this, you're the same. You're supposed to make that yeah. connection. So As the uh, as I remember it, um, they're watching through bin- the binoculars, but we get first-person point-of-view shots through the binoculars as well. And that's uh-huh. the, I don't remember the audience that, watching it. But that's, I don't try uh, to remember it, so... Yes. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a long time. Uh, I, I, there's definitely binoculars involved, but I don't yes. remember much about it I, otherwise. I remember just... So, I, I, I've seen Solo once, but I tried to watch it initially once uh, when the DVD was still out of print and impossible to watch at... Uh, yeah. a library like at a little screening kiosks at the cinema library they had at usc um and i got about like 40 minutes in and was like this is not for me i was probably ni- yeah. 18 19 at the time yeah, and also yeah, yeah. like very uncomfortable to watch it got to the point where it's very uncomfortable to watch in a public setting and yeah. so i didn't watch it again for you know probably five or six years and then it screened at the aero theater um you know in the early 2010s at uh on 35 millimeter and i thought oh, to man, myself I don't... I don't really i w- i want to know what the rest of the movie is i'd seen some more pasolini films at that point and kind of knew what i was in for versus having no idea when i first watched it yeah. and uh i was like if i make myself go see it in a theater i'll actually get through the whole movie rather than just turning it off again and Right, the right. Interesting thing about the experience of seeing Solo in a theater is, at least in the context of today, is uh, while you're watching it, uh, and I was sitting near enough the back that and near the aisle so that I could kind of see this, uh, people start leaving throughout the movie, and about a yeah. third of the audience left the theater and didn't uh, by the end of the movie. And I could also see as you know, you started seeing a bunch of different people start streaming out of the theater. Uh, a couple of guys that were as old as I was when I first tried to watch it and didn't uh, like 18 or 19, uh, like, like looking at every time someone passed them and then being like, <laughs> like to each other, like, Oh man, we're like, there's, there's, yeah. they can't, they can't, can't take it. They can't handle it. We're so cool. <laughs> they can't handle this, man. And then, and then that's you see those two reactions, people that leave and then people that think they're uh, above it or better or whatever because they're staying and able to watch it. And those are the two things you have in your mind watching it in a theater. And then he turns the binoculars around to look at you. And that's the only image I remember from the end of the film. Right. And I was just like, oh, we, the audience, are complicit. Like by choosing to watch this movie and staying right. through to the end it's we need to see that we have a connection to 
the people that are doing this and that the people that like allowed the things that happened under fascism to continue to happen. If you're willing to stay through this movie, yeah. you're probably also the sort of person that would have been passively complicit with a lot of other things that happened. And like, you're supposed to feel a little guilty right. yourself at the right. end of the film. And that's the point of the film. The outrageousness is meant to be an indictment on you, the audience choosing to watch this outrageous movie. And Right. And if it weren't for right. those couple of guys laughing at the people that they saw leaving, that I don't think I would have made that connection. And also, like, then feeling like, oh, my God, the people that left were right. Like, Pasolini made a movie where it's like, I, I want people to leave. The people that I respect are the people that don't watch my movie, which is, uh, talk about a throwdown. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and that that uh, that understanding of the point of Salo is why I am glad I watched Salo. Yeah, I've, but I've never, never recommended it to anyone to watch because <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a movie yeah. that you should tell people to watch. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's I've uh, I've been going through physical therapy because I broke my elbow a few months ago, and uh, my my physical therapist, her husband, is a cinephile. Uh, in her words. And uh, we've talked a lot about movies. And she asked me what the worst movie I've ever seen Kicking was. Kicking and screaming. And I said, I can't. <laughs> no, actually, we've seen I've Sergeant Pepper. Had you seen Sergeant Pepper's uh, Lonely Hearts Club Band yeah. yet? <laughs> probably. Probably. And oh, I think man. that is the one I ended up telling her about. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's like I can't, I can't in good conscience describe the worst yeah, movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I can't do psychic damage to you. To you. I'm actually. sorry. <laughs> Especially considering we are in a large room <laughs> with other people, uh, I can't. But, uh, but yeah, um, yeah. But that that dancing of the soldiers at the end really did, uh, you know, just a flash of salt. Obviously, in Salo, the dancing is in a different context than than what Chaplin was would have used the dancing for here. Um, but I think it would have uh, it would have changed the ending yeah. in an undermining well, sort of I way. Well, I think. Like There's in one of the features they uh, mention, like they show some stills from another scene set in the concentration camp, like after the they've been marched into the camp, right? Because really, it's almost just like a transition. We see mm -hmm. them like doing a, a funny goose step and then they collapse onto the bed and then we're done with the that as a scenario. But like it's it looks like from the production right. stills that Chaplin shot other sequences in the camp and cut them, which makes me think that he heard additional stories during the production that made him realize that the, the camps yeah. in the current context were not something he could make fun of. Um, so, yeah. So like, cause he took the, like, just like he took, changed the ending so that it wouldn't undermine the film. He also took out, I'm assuming scenes in the camps that would have also undermined the film. Cause obviously, you know, as he's making the movie, uh, you know, from from even from the finished script to when the movie comes out, right. yeah, a lot I mean, is yeah, happening. I think you just in keep Europe. finding out more information. Right. Things get like hard and like you know get weirder and kind of more terrifying, right? Like, well, I mean, if nothing else, like probably a, a somewhat unnerving experience to be making, right? Because you're just like you've got a story, you've got a plan, and then like another thing comes out, like a, you know, a month later that some piece of information comes out, and you're like, okay, well, do I need to like go back and add this in do i need to like adjust the story another thing the tramp and the dictator pointed out is that uh um the day this movie premiered is actually the day hitler arrived in paris oh, okay wow uh yeah 
I don't know if they are fudging some things to be rhetorical there, but because uh, the rhetoric, as Adam already said, the the rhetoric of the tramp and the dictator right. left a lot to be desired. But uh, but yeah, um, but yeah, just you know, in the in the process of making. Oh, this, I was just gonna say, Denmark fell, yeah, Poland it's, fell, it's, you know, oh, and it's just like it's crazy the amount that like Chaplin took a long time to make his films after city lights uh and how much happened during the making of this film and then for the film to be as on point as it was still and possibly growing more relevant by the day is quite remarkable uh whether or not it's like the those two events coincided precisely is almost immaterial because it's like you know like there's there's just a resonance between the real life events and like the this comedy takedown of the real life figures that's just inherent and necessary so um but it is a little like if that coincidence is like it you know is accurate it's also just like the world was changing so fast every every single day with like as, as things escalated in those 39 and 40 uh and it, it's hard to, I think, I think we're a little more aware of it in the last seven years, but it's also like a little hard to like imagine like how crazy that time must have been to be observing what was happening um, as it was happening. So, because it would also have felt as fast as things sound in retrospect, it also feels slow in the moment. It's the whole, you know, boiling lobster thing, right? So, yeah. Or boiling a frog thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen the Three Stooges, You Nazi Spy? No, I don't think so. Uh, it did actually premiere just before The Great Dictator. Uh, I've seen it once, and I think I started, it was it was probably on TCM, and I started after the movie had started. Uh, but it is, uh, it's an 18-minute short, and, uh... <laughs> Mo plays the Hitler role. Uh, Curly plays the Goering role uh, while uh, doing a Mussolini impression, as I recall. And uh, Larry plays the Goebbels role. Um, it is, it is something that uh, I don't know. It's it is the worst version of of the Great Dictator, certainly, right? Uh, but it does exist, and I guess that's the only reason I really mention it. <laughs> it's because... like, well, if you want to see a bad version of this, go watch this. Yeah. yeah. But I think there, you know, there are a lot of bad versions of this. Like, I don't, right. I think right. Abbott and Costello all made, like, very American-focused, like, war comedies and stuff. But, like, you know, like, there's there's a lot of, like, actually, there's not, I mean, in, in the cartoons and in the short subjects like the Stooges and whatnot is when you would have gotten a lot of the bad versions of this. A lot of the features at the time tended towards, you know, drama like the mortal storm and, you know, other, you know, movies coming out in this time that were like kind of rallying things against uh, the rising tide of fascism uh, treated it very seriously. And are also have a tendency to be somewhat turgid when you watch them today, I think uh, Watch on the Rhine is really good. It's a really good movie. It's completely a true story. And it's also just a little bit stiff. 
Like it's great that it exists. It's a great performance is a great script, but you know, it's also not something that lasts through the years, you know? Uh, and even, I don't, I don't know. I think there's something about like comedy attacking fascism that just really, really works really well. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not as bad as I'm remembering too. Like I said, I only saw it once and it was years ago, but it is the three stooges doing a Nazi nice. comedy. Um, but you know, the three stooges are also actually Jewish as opposed to Chaplin, just standing in solidarity. Uh, Chaplin's response to being accused by uh, accused of being Jewish, particularly by by Germany and the Nazis, uh, I really respect of his just absolute refusal to deny it and his stance that denying it just they win. Right. <laughs> if if it seems like it's something that needs to be denied, the anti Semite uh, shows you how smart uh, he was. There are yeah. there are a number of, you know, radical centrists today that could not understand that uh right that concept you know uh and the fact that he was you know articulated that like so specifically and clearly like in and saying you know that the act of feeling you need to deny it means that the anti-semites have won is like that's such a clear way of communicating that idea that like i feel like we lack today that kind of clarity yeah like you know it's that's thank you for like saying that and, and being that like straightforward about it. And there's like a, an antidote that's related that like, you know, someone was like making a joke about Hitler or something or making light of it or, you know, at a dinner party in the fifties. And it so upset Chaplin that he like went and like, they were making fun of like the idea of concentration camps, I think, or something like, like, Oh, they right. couldn't have been that bad. And he went and got a book and then forced her to look at pictures from the book of what the concentration yeah. camps were, uh, so that she would understand that it was real and it was worse than she could have imagined. Uh, and like, if it just like taking that action as well shows his sophistication, you know, you know, even if it was yeah. embarrassing for his kids, because his kids relate the anecdote with embarrassment, it's a heroic stand to take at a dinner party. It's like, damn. Right. <laughs> I mean, to to to, like, to be like, um, sort of like the the living embodiment of uh, that. Uh, they might be giant song about your racist friend, right? Like, no, yeah. I'm not going yeah. to let you just sit here and do this. Like, I'm yeah. going to actively force you to deal with it. Yeah. It's like that uh, that time uh, Peter Jennings was at a dinner party with uh, with Henry Kissinger and in a lull in conversation said, well, Henry, what's it like to be a war criminal? <laughs> uh, they just, one of my favorite anecdotes. They just gave him a new dinner party for his 100th birthday. Yeah, yeah. he's That's been terrible. On a, he's been on a dinner party tour for his 100th birthday, actually. Uh, every Everyone's been celebrating Kissinger this, this year. Celebrating genocidal uh, maniacs is a bad idea. <laughs> You'd think, um, but uh, a lot of people do seem keen on it. So, who can say what's I think good or bad? I have a theory. I have a pet theory that they're all just hoping he'll die at their dinner party. <laughs> then they get that story. That, yeah, yeah. That they would they get that like extra little like you know like the, you get to be in the news for a while with that one. I got to see him die. It sounds like yeah, a like, uh, sounds like a, a fictional short story in the New Yorker. Like I poisoned Henry Kissinger, sort of thing. <laughs> right. 
if only. Uh, someone will get to, maybe. Uh, then Wes um, Anderson would make a film about the play, about the movie, about the real-life documentary, <laughs> about the rehearsal of the movie. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> of the New Yorker article. So. Um, <laughs> uh, if, oh, if you I liked have, Asteroid City, I liked but it, Asteroid is, a, it City is very a deep. It's, <laughs> it's like, a lot of layers it's, of... It's, of you know, narrative. It it is. It's a Russian doll of a movie. It's not, yeah. you know, a play within a play like Hamlet. It's like a play within a play within a play within a play within a play. And I'm like, I think I get where you're going with this, but at yeah. a certain point, it just gets silly. Right. The turtles have gone also, too far down. Yeah, and also, right. I love that it gets silly, and that you love that it gets silly. Right. But yeah. I also lose the thread of seriousness that you seem to maintain throughout like right right yeah <laughs> sadly yeah, I mean, they did not have it on the airplane which means i won't i i have to wait until the next flight to see it because that's the rule <laughs> i'm only allowed to watch wes anderson for this podcast or on an airplane when i'm very very sleepy right maybe someday yeah. we'll uh it'll be in the pod I mean, either i'll the take pod. a plane with it on it or i'll, I'll yeah. you know have to watch it for the podcast I, yeah. that will happen assuming i'm still alive but yeah. I have to say, Jeffrey Wright's monologue in that movie might be the single best thing in any Wes Anderson movie oh, ever. Like yeah. Jeffrey Wright's oh fantastic my God. in it. <laughs> so yeah. good. Yeah. So, um, that's my speech. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the premiere of this was a huge event, according to the bonus features of on this DVD, um, that included... Uh, tons of celebrities, two Broadway theaters premiering it simultaneously to to hold the crowds, uh, a commemorative poster of caricatures of all of the celebrities who showed up, uh, annotated. <laughs> uh, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times called it too long, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> well, it's also, that's Crowther's. Like, Bosley yeah. Crowther was like kind of a semi-conservative critic and he would not have liked the ending speech oh absolutely so, not yeah absolutely not uh i'm sure he, he said also, worse things he also than could it. be a very like uh incisively uh he was a very good writer and he could you know and he didn't just tear down everything from a conservative perspective but something that like was this you know outspoken like you know it's natural that like given his tendencies that he would dislike it. I mean, Disney, Walt Disney didn't dislike this movie, but he did think like Chaplin had gone like kind of too far and like, you know, and like the, not in, in the explicitness of what he was saying. Like, you know, like there's a certain brand of conservative artistry that likes to keep things more implicit. Like the, they don't want things like stated so clearly. So Right, and that's certainly. But I mean, Disney was uh, obviously a huge admirer and friend of Chaplin, and like, yeah, Mickey Mouse might have been somewhat based, according to him, on Harold Lloyd, but like, the style of Mickey Mouse is Charlie Chaplin all over. You know, right. like it's the the little boy of Mickey Mouse is very much like kind of the innocent tramp like figure of City Lights and Gold Rush and whatnot. Like it's it's very there's very much an affinity between you know those two characters yeah ah man it is a fantastic film um because of my technical 
difficulties. I have no idea how long we've been ta- uh, recording right now. Um, An hour and 45. Yeah, we should probably I think, draw it to a close. Yeah, right. Uh, it now is great. Is when we talk about that semantic argument we had at the beginning. Let's get started, Adam. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, what was it? I don't remember. I don't remember either. Anti-war... Anti-war yes, yes. film versus what does it? What does anti-war satire? Is this yes, a war yes, satire? Is it an anti-war satire? It's not a satire uh, because it's, it's not. You know, it's, it's not, not really. satirizing war. It's it's a right. It's a war comedy, if anything. But because right. it doesn't have any war film imagery, it manages to be kind of an anti-war comedy, I guess you could say. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Certainly, the war imagery that is in here is. Uh, well, again, yeah, we see like we see like the, one, like two, we see like four tanks total, and like I said, we they all look like toys, right? Mm-hmm. Right. They right, all right, look right. like children's playthings, right? Yeah. They are like purposely rendered yes. in such a way to look bad and not like something that's even remotely admirable, right? Yeah. And the impotent, the impotent cannon at the front, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I guess it's it a giant cannon that right. just poops out of a shell. I guess yeah. it is like satirizing, you know. Like you're saying, like a satire does make sense. It's like uh, the satire, aesthetics of just, war, right? The aesthetics yeah, of fascism, the aesthetics of war, the aesthetics war of Hitler. But, but like, yeah, it right. doesn't. You know, I don't. You wouldn't necessarily associate satire with like you know the food fight. You know, it's almost more right, like right, it's right. almost more yeah. like a parody of a satire. So. Right. It, it <laughs> constantly <laughs> comes. It's sort of always like th- like kind of constantly threading that right because yeah. you know when he's being Hitler and he's trying to do the speeches. It's satire, but when he's like in a boardroom and they're just being stupid, it crosses over to being, you know, yeah, which is why, which is why satire often like needs to be really effective. It needs to be like a good example of the thing. Like, if you don't get the comedy, you would still like would understand that, you know, uh, but like that crutch of like satire needing to be so similar that you get the humor by the the contrast of it not being the thing it's it's very it's mimicking is uh you know i feel like you don't get that from chaplin like you know from this movie it doesn't feel like yeah you would still know this was a funny movie even if you took away the like contrast of like you know uh of all the world war ii iconography we're talking about like it's you know right the 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 food fight and the globe and everything else and like even like the crazy gun at the beginning are all just funny and comedic in and of themselves like they don't right they're not comedic only right. in relation to hitler so you know. yeah i think that's fair yeah, yeah it's they're it's not satire so much as just open mockery yeah open disdain yeah right for sure you can't yeah, yeah. you can't watch the globe the globe sequence and think there, there's not a reading of that 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 is good right, right. It's, it's just silly um yeah but yeah fantastic movie fantastic to have you on adam thank you so much for joining us thanks for having uh, me n- next week we'll be talking about uh nicholas rogue's insignificance from 1985 thank you so much for listening to lost in Criterion. i'm as always the adam glass with me as always john patrick otara dorgan i'll see you next time bye Bye.
This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.